Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Poetry on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Zambalan, and I'm here with Dong Lee, the author of The Orange Tree, out this spring from the University of Chicago Press, and the collection we'll be discussing today. Dong Lee is a multilingual author who translates from Chinese, English, French, and German. Born and raised in China, he was educated at Deep Springs College and Brown University. Thanks for joining me, Dong. Thank you for having me, Anna. Of course. The the Orange Tree is lyrical and narrative, familial, political, and legendary, and made up of five long poems separated by calligraphy of untranslated Chinese characters. The book's foreword introduces this question of language as bridge both to the writer and to the world, and the calligraphic characters, alongside the compound English words, quote, luminously legible to thought and feeling. I wondered if you could say a little bit about the genesis of this book. It was sort of it started a decade ago or more than a decade ago when I actually first came to the United States. And uh, so I was sort of, um, I was giving a family speech at a very tiny college in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And uh, it was difficult. I was sort of traumatized and it was sort of, I was also forced to articulate myself in the desert in the very verbal community. And uh, so one thing about this college is that you have to make up, you, you have public speaking as one of the requirements. So um, so one of the prompts was to give a, give a speech about the family. So I thought I, I should take that, you know, opportunity to talk about my family, you know, um, um, which was not familiar to most people um, uh, at the college, at the tiny college. So I, I decided, oh, maybe I should I should sort of uh, give a speech about my sort of family and uh, and see how it goes. And uh, um, so I just sort of um, gave a speech in prose. Of course, that speech was in prose. Um, about my family, and then after that, sort of my my grandfather passed away, and uh, while I was at the college, and um, and uh, I was thinking, okay, maybe I should make something beautiful out of it, and then, um, but I, you know, did not proceed to um, to accomplish that um, at the college, and uh, and then I started to um, to delve into poetry writing more. Uh, a brown and uh, and then um, I thought, okay, maybe maybe you know the the time um, interval and was long enough for me to have a kind of critical distance, and I sort of shaped that speech into you know um, into the core of the book, which is sort of the orange tree poem. It's so interesting to know that time is a. a formative element of the process of composing this book because one of the orange tree's preoccupations is time. Um, in the first poem, The Aviary of Water and Fire, it emphasizes the expansiveness of time. There's both 
not long ago and also references to the first emperor centuries ago. So there's this immediacy and humanity of ancestors across time. And I was particularly interested in the, um, the, the language on page nine. Um, I wonder if you could read that page aloud. Sure. Maternal great-grandparents have been dead for a long time. Paternal great-grandparents too. Maternal grandparents are long dead. Paternal grandparents died. Grandma, Grandpa, you're dead. Parents are dying. Mafa, you're dying. Am I dead or dying? Is death the only family? This is so striking because we have this verb repeated, but across tenses. Um, how are you thinking about time, family, and history, both in this page, in this poem, and throughout the book? I think for me, it's um, because I was so sort of, I was, you know, I was away from my family for, for such a long time. I've been living abroad for for almost two decades. So um, I think in my mind, I think not just, you know, being isolated from my family, I think just in general, in my mind at least, if I, I start to think about, you know, certain things or people in my family, I feel like I'm with them. If I think of them, you know, I'm with them. If I, you know, if I'm not thinking about them, I'm not with them. So I feel like through thinking, really, using, you know, the, the magic of the mind, I could be with them, and uh, I, I just feel like in the mind there is not there is not exactly this chronology of time. Um, time becomes very much fluid in the mind and in the thinking, and by extension also in the feeling, because feeling is also could be a response to your thinking. And it's so interesting to know that this book arose out of a, a speech or, or thinking that took place in the medium of prose and was revised with a bent towards beauty and towards poetry. How is poetry uniquely positioned to envelop or uncover these things? Which I guess is a kind of way of asking what kind of language is poetry and what kind of storytelling is possible in poetry that is different from prose? I think for me, I was I wasn't thinking about really about the difference of uh, between folk poetry and prose. I I just wanted to make something irresistible, but also irreducible. You know, just something little, but uh, radiant. I think that was sort of my goal, and I just feel like just in a speech, I think it has sort of. It has its frankness when you give a speech, give a talk. It's friendly. It could be very close, um, but it doesn't not have that. You know, I still want my poetry to be speech-like. You know, to retain that quality. But I feel like it's the combination of the speech-like quality, that frankness, but also with the concentration of you know of what a language could do, the treatment of a language or the pressure of a language upon the history, upon the stories they want to tell. And I think that was sort of my experiment. Mm. And there is a radiance in the syntactic variety across this book. Um, there's a couple of interludes about rivers that feel river-like. There's an interlude about a train that feels train-like. Um, mm. And elsewhere, the river or the syntax is punctuated um, or bracketed in ways that feel uh, sort not necessarily directive to the way that the syntax should be read, but that do shape in some way the sonic quality of the sentence. I, I think, could we take a look at page 33? Sure. And maybe hear this page aloud too. 33, okay. 
new memory took over. Old memory rusted. Would new memory last? His journey entered day. He had to leave. No choice. No regrets. The rice field flooded. The truck bumped. The road was rough. He lowered his head. Watching was dizzying. Old friends went silent. He sat in the roar of the river on a long ride. The parting was not difficult. He was still himself. He looked at his hands. Lay down your weathered body. Fierce winter. Sun flurries clouds.、Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And as a side note to our listeners, it is so important to look at these poems on the page. I really encourage everyone to.、Um, To find a copy of this book and see how the the words track across the page、um, from top to bottom and side to side. And I guess the question that I mean to ask about this page and about about what you're doing here with syntax and with space,、um, the way the landscapes are rend- rendered on the page seems to be in direct relationship with the way the language is structured or the the textural quality of the rhythm.、Um, So I wondered how you think about form and movement on the page and in the language and in the landscape. I think I just wanted to come back, to, you know, just very briefly to a point that you made about the time interval, the interval time、um, that provided me with a kind of critical distance, and I feel like. You know, there was I was you know I was mourning, I was in grief、um, for for a、um, particular long time because I was not able you know to go back to China、uh, when my grandfather passed away, and、uh, so there was that loss that you know that was pretty poignant to me, and、uh, but that felt like a lake, you know, it's like a lake. I was sinking in that lake of grief. And then I thought, okay, with that critical distance, I could make that. I could turn that lake, that grief, you know, of a lake, grief lake, into a river.、Um, and that was with, with the river, you know, encounter different landscapes along the way as you encounter, you know, the different histories as you as I imagine, you know, the histories of my family members. And I just feel like. You know, when you're a river running through with different landscapes, with different kinds of shores, you you get different sense of、uh, typography or sense of、um, words on the page because really the book is kind of a river, and you can see the you know the empty spaces as the shore or as the real river, and the words as you know the landscapes along the shores and、uh, or along the river, and、uh, so I I have that sort of.、Uh, Um, you know the running river in my mind,、uh, which you know I could ride my way into this grief of lake. Because I I thought if I was sinking in this um, um, grief lake, I wouldn't be able to come out and swim. And with the river, there was a chance I could be you know washed washed up to shore. And that was sort of、um, how I、um, envisioned the whole manuscript.、Mm. And it's poignant to think about the remoteness of the Chinese landscapes that are present in the book too. You've talked elsewhere about this book and earlier in our conversation <clears throat> about the California desert,、um, and and you've also lived, of course, in the northeastern United States. Maybe when some of this writing was happening,、uh, how do these landscapes inflect your The, man, the landscapes of your memory and your imagination. I think with California was sort of the the great expanse of space. I think that was important to me because then you can experiment because that you know huge amount of space and you're faced with that huge huge amount of space and、uh, and I just 
felt not inhibited to experiment and fail, and uh, um, because you can always hear echoes in the desert, um, and you're almost all almost always alone if you walk really into the desert where no no one's really around, and uh, and also think thought of, you know quite often and still think often about the Bristol cone pines. Uh, which are not really far from the um, from the college in the desert, and which I visited quite often. And just thinking about these, you know, these very old trees, one of the oldest trees on earth, or the oldest trees on earth, you think about, you know, um, well, the time is, it could be, you know, flat and open like the desert, and uh, even the Chinese time, even the Chinese histories. And uh, I feel like that open space really, um, provided a kind of freedom to experiment. And so uh, with the New England um, landscape, it was sort of, for me, it was more intellectually, it was sort of um, a continuation from the, you know, the college environment in the desert, because the college I attended, Deep Springs College, there was very intellectual and, um, and verbal and very critical environment. And uh, I think sort of... Um, that was kind of similar to the New England, you know, um, talky, fast, very intellectual environment in the New England. Uh, I, I thought that was kind of similar. That was kind of a continuation. But of course, you're more enclosed, especially in winter times. You're more enclosed in your own space, in your own rooms. So that's different. And also, it's definitely not as sunny as um, as the California <laughs> landscape. So I think it also helped to bring the rain and the snow into into the book with the New England landscape. Mm. The sun flurries clouds. There's a hint of snow there. Yeah, just that change from the sun to the flurried clouds, yeah. Yeah. And in this section, too, we move from the... The, the movement of the pronoun, I think, is something that's also at stake. Um, and the pronoun can alternately indicate what's communal or personal or familial, but it also helps give us a sense of the book's poetic persona and its lyric attention. Um, in, in the section that you just read, we move from he to you, and a few pages later, we fold back into the you again. Um, you are again in the middle of the river. You could turn now, turn. Um how do you think about the relationship between yourself as the poet and the the story and what the story is doing to the pronoun? I think um, I, I think of myself when I was, especially when I was, some, you know, doing the book. I thought of myself more as a listener than as a poet. You know, a listener and a transcriber, so to speak, than a, uh, than really a poet. And uh, I was just trying to listen to these stories in my mind or listen to the voices of these stories um, because I did ask my, um, as I was thinking about really doing a poetry book out of that um, prose speech, I did ask them, you know, some members, of the, especially the female members, the family, um, you know, just in passing, not really to have a deliberate um, conversation about the histories that they've experienced, but really just in passing to get a sense of their voice, because in that voice, you know, sort of, I feel like I could... Um, I could live for a little bit in that voice and to to, to recount um, the histories as I imagine and I as I imagine um, seeing them experiencing that and um, um, so it's never it's never really about me but really about them um, in the book and. Uh, so I, I also wanted to have that kind of distance if I'm really writing about me, about I, and um, I feel like I lose kind of that kind of, not just the distance, um, but in actually counterintuitively, I, I, I would lose the closeness. Because if I write in the they perspective, more or less, and then I feel like I'm one with them. And the I and the me perspective is always there because I'm the person who's you know doing the transcribing, doing the listening. So I feel like I don't I, I don't have really have to worry about the I and the me perspective. I just have to listen to those voices speaking in my mind 
as I'm with these people and to write down, jot down um, whatever you know that's passing through my mind. And uh, yeah, so that was. Um, but but I did use quite a few use. Um, I think whenever I used you, I was just trying to be more explicit. But also, I think when um, when I'm sort of almost like impersonating um, that person in that situation, like like you sort of briefly mentioned, you are again in the middle of the river. You could turn now, so that's sort of a life death situation, actually, um, because you know that person's sort of drowning probably in the river, and uh, I I feel like I cannot really imagine that situation for something you know so so extreme that i haven't experienced myself um i just feel like i have to use the more reflexive you um to be together in pronoun in that pronoun with that person trying to imagine and to be more explicit that you know it's not my experience um, because you almost feels like the opposite of I in that particular case. So that was, you know, what, what I was trying to do with the you, just to be more explicit that I'm, you know, I'm writing about, I'm really imagining or even impersonating that person in that extreme situation. This paradoxical relationship between inhabiting another person or another character, another voice, and the second person in relationship with the first person, um, it's it also creates a sort of tension between the poem and the reader, because then the poem is almost speaking directly to the reader, too. Is that, it, how do you think about a reader in, in a sort of triangulation with, um, the poetic subjectivity that may or may not be visible in a first-person pronoun, and in many cases it's not, in this case it's not visible in a first-person pronoun, but that is also performing a kind of um, translation, almost, of a, of a third-person story. Um, I wasn't sort of thinking about, you know, I was... I was actually making a big mess um, um, with the manuscript, so I wasn't really using this, you know, deliberately using the pronoun as a strategy to energize the text. It just happened that, you know, I feel like, okay, whenever it's an extreme situation, whenever it's hard to imagine, I use the you, you know, to be more explicit uh, about, you know, that that's a relationship. Um, um, Otherwise, I just use the third person singular or plural, and um, and uh, um, so I wasn't really thinking about you know trying to um, trying to please the reader, but I did want to uh, make the book sort of legible, but also interesting to read. You know, people you know people turn the page, but in a good way, and um, so I think uh, when I was really you know, putting the manuscript together, I thought, okay, this sort of is working, the pronouns, you know, the tensions between the pronouns, they're working. So I, I think sort of, I, I tried to make that perhaps a little bit more pronounced when I was revising the manuscript. But it wasn't really a deliberate method of energizing the manuscript. It, it feels very intuitive, though, this this sort of dance between the pronouns. And I was interested in the the moments when a female third or a female third person came in. Mm -hmm. Um in particular page forty eight, this interlude about the lilacs. Uh-huh. Let's hear this poem aloud, this page. Sure, forty eight. Okay. Lilac a requiem. July late snow july lilacs not yet bloomed in full day began as usual coyotes howled as if it were night a dog barked then another all the dogs barking dogs could not venture out last night Rice bushels, peasants gathered, wasted in their courtyards. There was some shuffling in the snow. 
facing the snow, lilac up the ragged road. No one knew how many roads she had walked before this. No one knew how many bridges she had crossed before summer. No one knew her, and it had snowed. Wiping off the snow, she dug her face into the bushels. They smelled of summer. The bushels were frozen, and so was her face. It was as if time had frozen, and whitened into snow. In the snow, her long dress looked purple. She always wore a purple dress, no matter the season. Something she had kept for years. When summer never snowed. When it always summered. Her feet purpled. The dogs stopped barking. They were chewing on her bones. She was covered in snow. From some distance, the edge of her dress. Her mind started to drift, until it reached purple. Then her eyes opened. She saw summer coming. Down. The ragged road, lilacs, snow. The first time she was allowed to stroll in the garden, it was summer. Lilacs had already bloomed. Their petals purpled the garden. She collected lilacs and brewed tea out of them. Then she put on a lilac dress. She met her first man, and her many men. She felt nothing. The blood that flowed from her purpled, and paled. Purple in flood, snow thawed. Her body stiffened, like a tree. On that morning, no light. Was turned. She heard lilacs blooming. She has been dead for a long time. Purple lilac, her only friend. Deep in the rice bushels, her body, her mind frozen. Lilac came to a stall. Driftless bird, a song. Facing the snow. Lilac up the ragged road, down the ragged road, lilacs snow. Thank you. This page is so stunning, but with its simultaneity of seasons and time, and lilac snow as an image and as a lyric refrain, I wondered if you could just speak a little bit to the. Different components of this poem, as well as its form,、um, thinking through the prose line or the prose block intention with these、um, lyric fragments, almost that that echo the image or intensify it. Uh huh. So I was thinking. I think the first thing that came to me there was actually、um, those refrains: facing the snow, lilac up the ragged road, and down the ragged road, lilac snow. I was thinking about you know the, those refrains. They 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 came to me first. These sounds, and I feel like okay. And then I was you know it happened. There there was the story that you know、uh, my mother told me about.、Um, About and then I was thinking, okay, maybe I can make this story into into a kind of a poem, into a story poem,、um, but with the you know、um, a lot of the information withheld. So in prose, but it, it, it's more like prose poetry, but without you know a lot of the narrative gestures、um, or without a lot of the information that you can you know it's sort of not entirely linear, and、uh, I just feel like. Using these colors and refrains, and,、uh, and you know,、uh, 
um, as they pop out. And uh, I just feel like if, if it, it could feel like, you know, um, it, it reminded actually remotely, it reminded me of my experience in the desert, just looking at the stars, you know, as these stars pop out um, um, in the night sky and uh, to have that feeling, you know, as these refrains pop out and twinkle in my mind as I write, you know, as I wrote this uh, this piece. Um, I just want that those refrains to, you know, to stay and to be sort of a organizing principle um, for this um, little poem, because these are, even though these refrains seem, you know, might not be so central to the poem, they are the, you know, the hidden um, mastermind behind this, this, uh, this poem. In these crystallized moments, these images work as a kind of key to personalize a reading experience of the poem, too. Um, they're so emotive, these, these lyric refrains. Um, yeah, that was sort of, um, I just could not get, you know, get my mind off the, because the, these refrains, they've been ringing in my mind for quite a few months. And I thought, okay, they're calling me. And uh, at the time, you know, I would just talk to, you know, um, my mother about the story. And I thought, okay, I really have to, you know, trying to put this, these two things together into one thing. And I just feel like that little bit of tension um, that also works the refrains and also on um, the prose blocks, I feel, okay, to tell a story, but without really telling the whole story, to give, give sort of an atmosphere. And uh, since it's also the, you know, the beginning poem of that particular section about the women, actually in the family, and that was very poignant to me because I really, I mean, I, I'm, I, I really um, got the stories from mostly the women, especially my mother. And so this particular section um, had a, um, was kind of important to me in composing the whole book. And thinking about the atmospheric qualities of the book, um, of course, there's so many, there's so much that's rich in the images and in the um, the textures, like we've discussed there. But I love thinking about the grief lake being becoming a river um but there's also play that you're doing like we've said a little bit across the page and using the space on the page and then there's play with punctuation punctuation too mm -hmm. um on page 54 and this is not the only time this happens in the book but there's very short lines oriented in the middle of the page and each line is bracketed mm -hmm. um i wonder if we could hear this page aloud too Sure. She was caught up, dazed, pushed to walk the long road. Before her, the walk. They were flying skyward, river to shore, like ghosts like ravens, like something flying back into night. Look away, no shade out of darkness. There was no time to think, to act. Time shreds. She was flying jellyfish-like. No difference. Float. Lightly. Lighter. Lightest. Thank you. As with many other, really, truly the whole book, it's immersive, the quality of the language. Um, but I wonder how you think about the relationship between poetry on the page and poetry that is spoken and, and how that might be in collaboration or in conversation or maybe in tension with the way you're using punctuation or space on the page. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's actually a great question because... I think usually, unless you're doing a recording of the whole book, so usually at a reading or at an event, you are not able to read the whole book. 
So it's just sort of a different story, right? Because you, you know, for me, I have to really curate a reading um, that's sort of particular to that event or that, you know, to that season or that, to that place. And um, so the reading is definitely a curated um, excerpt um, performance, experted um, performance of the, from the book. Um, but for the reading, um, you know, on the page, I think it's sort of a different kind of, it's not really a performance, but it's performative uh, with words and with the spacing. So I do see this sort of the whole book as sort of a, a piece of artwork and, uh, and uh, it could stand on its own. But also I see each section as sort of a piece that could stand on its own and uh, they sort of talk to each other, resonate, fight with each other, cancel each other, and pass by each other. Um, I just want them to have that quality like a family, you know, just like, you know, I got those stories from all these family members. I just want to have each page and uh, within a section and each section within the book to, to be able to really to act as a sibling, as a sister, you know, um, for the book. So the book becomes sort of a family of words. I had, as I told you over email, I had this anxiety of of not wanting to break up your poems, um, the long poems, the long sections. But I mean, absolutely, these poems, each page can be experienced as its own sort of scene in, in a long textural life and or, or in a family like you said it's it's interesting to think about the the poems or the pages as familial with each other um and then even within the pages there's small images like we discussed with the the lilac refrain but also line breaks even individual line breaks that one could sit with for a long time and think about and that could inflect or inform a reading of the whole book. Um, I was thinking about on page 61, there's in the middle of the page, there's a line break or a couple of line breaks that I think are really interesting. It reads, come easy, break, come, break, go which feels like a broken idiom, a broken easy come, easy go, but also reversed. Um, and then there's other play in the section too. There's a divorced, forced rhyme on the next page. How are you thinking about that kind of play, um, even idiomatic play in English? I know that you've mentioned that English is an adopted language and this book is originally written in English. It's not a translation or a self-translation. Um, how are you thinking about that kind of play? It could be seen as um, um, uh, seen as a translation because I think the the Chinese sensibility for the book is definitely there. The you know despite the fact that it has a lot of uh, Chinese stories and uh, so that the sensibility is always there, even though it's written in a different language. And uh, with the play. Um, I thought, you know, also with the punctuation, I just wanted to do um, something different because I have sort of a limited vocabulary and I tend to use some more limited vocabulary. So, so I just want to uh, try to do things that uh, that's sort of interesting, but also that has to do with my um, interest in language learning. Um, the thing you said about um, the inversion with uh, come easy, come go, right? So... Um, so that was sort of, I think the French used quite a lot of inversion in wordplay. So that was sort of one thing. And the Germans use, you know, use compound words more often than in other languages. So these languages, they sort of, they, 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 they sort of um, become a source of um, not just inspiration, but kind of a background music that, um, that sort of um, slips into, into, um, into the book. Mm. You anticipated a question that I, I had intended to ask about uh, your language work and your work as a translator of other poets, of living poets too, um, and how I wondered, I, I, I had wanted to ask, especially when you were talking about 
the disappearing first-person subjectivity that nonetheless is the filter through which these stories are received um, and then and then in turn presenting them through a subjectivity even if the first-person pronoun is not apparent um, how do principles of translation or of the relationships between languages with their distinct vocabularies and grammars um, inform or inflect your work? I think, um, so for me, it's sort of a, a combination, but also a collision of different kinds of sensibilities, because I think being a translator, it suits me very well, because, you know, um, the Chinese sensibility tells you to be um, selfless, um, especially in the collective sense. But I feel like my um, my sense is sort of uh, an individualized uh, um selflessness so it's still you know yeah contains the individual but also it wants to be selfless so so i let the work you know the other poets if i translate the the poets then i let the i try to let the other you know uh poets speak and try to make myself as invisible as possible even though um nowadays you know people you know i think there are great campaigns for the visibility of uh, of translators but i think for translation invisibility is still a great quality you know i i I'm all for the visibility of translators, but in terms of really doing the translation work, I feel translation is really invisibility. It's a really great quality so that you don't get yourself, your own sensibilities, your own poetic um, uh, intentions into, into, you know, into the, um, the poems in translation. And uh, so that's sort of, for me, that's both sort of... Uh, uh, a combination of different sensibilities, but also a collision. So there was a little bit of tension there. And uh, and after writing this book, so I actually published a few translations before publishing this book of my own original poetry, I realized, oh, okay, really, the translator sensibility is really actually in the book. I was, you know, translating, you know, the stories into, you know, the sensibility of another language to get it channeled through, you know, to let the river of that, you know, Chinese stories, Chinese heritage, you know, to be channeled into the river of the English language. I thought that was just such a beautiful thing to think about. And also to think about, you know, you also have, um, you know, um, uh, perhaps German lakes and French lakes on the side as, yeah, as the river runs through. So I, I find it quite interesting. And also it maps sort of um, my interest in, in poetry in general. And there's a richness to the, the sort of community that the book creates to, of course, thinking about the qualities of the storytelling and the languages, but also the other poets that may be present here. Um, it's, of course, dedicated to C.D. Wright, and at some point there's an epigraph from her, too. So there's a presence of a teacher or a, a maybe a, a just co-poet in the world. Um, but then there's also the calligraphy, and I was curious about the, the quality of the collaboration there and how you think about um, poetic community from this perspective. The collaboration with a calligrapher or in general yeah. with other poets? Both, yeah. Are thinking about influence, maybe more generally, um, yeah, and, I, and collaboration, maybe. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes it's kind of mystery that you are drawn to, right? Because you are drawn to that particular poet, and sometimes it's really hard to pin down. You can analyze, um, but it's really hard to pin down. There is that quality of mystery, which I think that's where all in for. That's sort of the poetry of all languages. I think all the language in the world, all the languages in the world share this core of poetry. Poetry is the language of all languages. And uh, I think that's really essentially what we are drawn to. And when I'm drawn to a poet, I really cannot really say exactly. I can analyze, but really, I'm drawn to the mystery of that, you know, of that poetics. And uh, so um, when I translate and I just feel like I'm sort of automatically absorbing that influence, but also I cannot really pin down what I'm absorbing 
what I'm learning. I cannot just wear somebody else's clothes, right? So I, I think that sort of it's like nourishment. It's like food, right? It's it could be an exotic food that you haven't tasted before, but it could be the common food, but cooked in a particular way that suits your sensibility, suits your stomach, and uh, that becomes really nourishing for you at that moment. And uh, so I'm I feel like I cannot really say exactly. What these influences are, especially on a particular book, um, yeah. So, um, but in general, I feel like I'm absorbing. You know, as long as I read something, I am absorbing that language into my system. And perhaps this is relevant to the the compound words that exist in the interstices of the sections and the glossary that closes the book. Um, the glossary in search of words, though, not maybe in, in service of invention and collection, but not strict definition. Mm-hmm. How are you thinking about the glossary as a form here? So it, I sort of I was putting this together and I, I just wanted to make my sort of methodology transparent. So these words, you know, many of these words appear in front of each section. Um, almost all of the words come from the poems or the sections and uh, they become sort of a roadmap for the whole book. And at first the roadmap was not there. And I thought, well, actually I haven't really found exactly what I'm sort of looking for but maybe the book is pointing toward what i'm looking for so i just wanted to make this transparent and indeed i meant it when i titled this sort of glossary in search of words i'm still you know looking for these words these unarmed words that you know um that that um uh, that can point me to to the direction that i'm going still sort of in a in a blur state um, but through the writing, I feel like I'm sort of, um, you know, parting away the fog around that blurb and a little bit. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah. And also I, want, I wanted to refer back to a little bit to the collaboration with the calligrapher. I'm really grateful to Xu Jing, who actually did the calligraphy last minute. And um, the collaboration was sort of interesting to me because with the you know poets influences trans you know translated poets their influence on you i think sometimes you can still sort of tell from the certain gestures but with xu jing that was just i told xu jing you know via another person actually a translated poet to uh, about the project and then she just you know, did it um, right away. And uh, I just told my sort of intentions in a couple sentences and she just did it, you know, and I used all of her um, calligraphies and they sort of, it just, you know, it's just one of those miracles that, that saved, saved you, you know, it was uh, for me at least. So I believe in those miracles and mysteries. <laughs> That's really lovely. And it's, I, I, I think there's such a lovely generosity too the way the um, the community comes together in the book. And I, I don't know, like the, the calligraphy does really matter to the book. And I think the glossary too is so fascinating because these words are set with the definite article. It's not a long dead, a grief wall, a spring autumn. It's the long dead, the grief wall, the spring autumn. So there's such a direction, even if it is a search also. That's that's right. I think a critic and uh, a critic mentioned that it's sort of it feels both individual but also collective. Mm. With the, the the it's very particular, but also it's um, um, uh, um, sort of collective because I think it also has to do with the compound uh, word. It's not just one particular word that you can pinpoint. Rather, it's a compound of elements that they sort of fight or you know work or not work with each other. I think that kind of tension is always there. And it could be a kind of harmony, but it also could be a kind of tension there. And I think that makes it perhaps more collective. Mm, that's really lovely. Um, well, thank you so much for your thoughts about poetry and about language and about reading and community. Um, I wonder, in closing, could we hear the title poem aloud, The Orange Tree? Okay, just the whole thing? Yeah, I think so. Okay, sure. I'll read the whole thing. <laughs> 
The Orange Tree. In a yellowed family photo, there is an orange tree. Leaves burned. The oranges are green, but we are already starting to look alike in the photo. By the orange tree is grandparents' house. We all once walked over its threshold to pick oranges. The tree was tall, and only men in the family could reach. Uncle, Grandma's only surviving son, was young then. He could not reach, so we took turns to shake the tree. There is always traveling in the family, in our blood. The big orange tree bloomed when grandparents passed away. The house was handed over to uncle. Next time the oranges turned orange, we would meet again under their shade. We agreed. Just like the times when grandparents were alive, Grandpa was born into a general's family in Nanjing. His father was an ardent follower of Sun Yat-sen. The eldest son of the family, Grandpa inherited his father's title. He worked for the nationalist government of Kuomintang. Which Sun founded. He also took care of the family orchard garden. In the garden, each generation planted their own orange tree. During festive times, and even in later war times, neighbors were invited. In the garden, they could enjoy the delicacy of the season. Grandpa had three brothers and two sisters. His youngest brother fell in love with a Japanese lady, and they secretly married. Great Grandpa ousted him from the family. We never had orange parties again. The youngest brother soon got a job as a chauffeur for the Japanese war generals. He started his own family with a lady. He became a trader. In the dead winter of 1937, Grandpa's orange trees were still in their prime. The oranges fell at night, one after another, soft on the ground. The Japanese army invaded the old capital. In six weeks, three hundred thousand people were tortured, buried, and burned alive in ditches. The Yangtze River bloomed orange red. Great Grandpa was able to make some arrangements before the invasion. He gave all to the Communist Party and betrayed Kuomintang. He arranged for Grandpa to leave for Suzhou. On December the eighth, he hanged himself by the window. The lacquered window opened to the garden of green and red oranges. The oranges had their first frost. Before fleeing, Great Grandpa gave Grandma an orange tree plant. He told her to plant it where the soil was rich. When the orange tree was with us, then we would be together. 
we would have some shade and fruit in the family. Soon the two younger brothers were shocked to death. In anticipation of the atrocities to come, a revenge for the fugitives. The two sisters were reluctant to leave Nanjing at a nunnery in the eastern suburb. They shaved their heads. Grandpa, together with Grandma and their first daughter, fled. They walked 45 miles and settled at Rainbow Street 12. The orange plant was finally put in the soil. When the family was still in Nanjing, in the family garden, maternal great-grandparents were having orange parties. Paternal great-grandparents joined the People's Liberation Army on the Long March. 80,000 people went on the march, and 7,000 made it to Yang'an headquarters. Great-grandparents were left unburied on the firm snowy mountains. Ten years later, Grandpa joined the party and was later transferred to Suzhou. In due season, the orange plant bloomed. Paternal Grandpa liked eating oranges. Maternal grandparents held orange parties. Just like the parties great-grandparents held in the family garden. They met and paternal grandpa became a family friend. This was just before the founding of the People's Republic of China. The local Communist Party factions were still fighting for power. Grandpa was wounded in a street fight. He dragged his bleeding legs and elbowed his way to maternal grandparents' house. Grandma had some medical knowledge from her surgeon father. She treated locals for free. Paternal grandpa hid under the orange tree until he could walk again. He was made hero of the party. He protected maternal grandparents' family from execution. He never mentioned their affiliations. Day by day, the orange tree grew taller, but the family never had time to enjoy its fruit or shade. They recited Chairman Mao's Little Red Book. The Cultural Revolution began following three years of natural disasters. Mother was four. She survived famine on orange peels. 38 million people died from hunger. Grandma's first son died of TB. On her shabby medical table, Grandma died a week later from exhaustion. Ten years of cultural revolution. Father joined the Red Guards. At school, they tortured his teachers. They traveled across the country to meet other young activists to propagate Mao's thought. On the train to Beijing, father brought a basket of bright red oranges. He wanted to see Mao. Tiananmen Tower was flooded with the orange-red faces of the young guards. People wondered and wasted away. They had no time for orange parties. More orange trees were planted after the Cultural Revolution. They were no longer a rare delicacy and more varieties appeared in the marketplace. After China's opening, we never had time to meet again at uncle's house. 
uncle moved into a modern apartment building, and no one ever picked oranges again. Still, the orange tree bore fruit. Winter comes and goes. Oranges fall and grow. The dead and the living travel through the house, past the shade of the old orange tree. Its white flowers bloom and wilt. Then the oranges turn red. Every year, the orange tree turns red. Grandparents never ate any oranges. Last year, the orange tree suffered from warm weather. All its leaves were burnt white. Thank you. Thank you, Don Lee. Thank you so much.、Um, it's such a an expansive poem, and the way that it recurs, and the way that it extends,、um, the way the the living and the dead travel through the house and the poem.、Um, Thank you、yeah. so much for your close reading. <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm in awe of the reading of this of this poem,、um, and I appreciate you taking the time to think through the poem and the book and the page with me.、Um, and thank you to our our listeners、uh, again. This has been Dong Lee, author of The Orange Tree, out this spring from the University of Chicago Press.、Um, there will be a link to order the book in our show notes. Uh, thank you again, Dong. Thank you so much. I wish the conversation could go on forever. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I do too. All right. Until we meet again.、Um, thank you. Thank you. We'll meet again. <laughs>